may have missed some of the assignments. Um, there are, I have a few extras around here, um, and and Sean, the manager, um, has everything uh, in the emails that I've sent him. So we might, you know, you could go to him and ask him for copies or come up here afterwards. Uh, I see I have one of step three, step four and five. Um, so I might have some others I can dig out. Um, and, you know, in that regard, um, you might be interested that a friend of mine, Stephanie uh, Tate, who, who filled in for me one time last year, um, she is working on a book, uh, a workbook, Buddhism 12-step workbook. And she's been having trouble with it, and she asked me to co-write it with her. And right now my agent is negotiating with her publisher. So I may deign to uh, bring my skills to bear on that. So may, if we're lucky, we'll have a, we'll have a book um, with all this stuff and, and much more uh, in a year or so. Um, Okay. Are you um, posting the audio? Um, yes. DharmaSeed.org. Yeah. I'm not sure how much of it has gotten posted, but uh, Walt, Walt said he listened to it last week. Was it on DharmaSeed? Yeah, the Q&A and the talk from last week. Okay. Yeah, it should be every... What's the code? No code. It starts just under my name. You just look under Kevin Griffin and cool. I would rather that those tapes would all self-destruct at the end of the evening, but but I've even heard that Jack Cornfield doesn't list, like to listen to his own talks, so that made me feel better. If you ever want to, you know, torture me. Tie me up and make me listen to my Dharma talks. <laughs> so, um, well, I'm going to try to get out of myself now, which is very hard right now, but I'm trying. So this week I wanted to talk about steps four and five. Step four says we made a well, I have it backwards here, don't I? I made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And uh, step five says, we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Um, and, I, you know, this is where I, I feel that the uh, really explicit uh, explicitness of these steps, of this process in the 12-step world um, brings something to the Buddhist world that it needs. There's this kind of uh, attitude, and again, uh, you know, just a lot of these things are kind of my opinions or my view of how it so these aren't statements of truth or fact, but there seems to be a kind of feeling around Buddhism that it's 
like every, every person for themselves, or as we used to say, every man for himself, <laughs> before we get, realized what we were saying. But it's a, it's a more poetic phrase than every person for themselves. In any case, every man or woman for him or herself. <laughs> that we kind of come in here and we get the instructions and then we're on our own. And there's even a quote that people take from the, the, some of the Buddha's final words where he says, be an island unto yourself. Um, and, and I think I felt that when I was learning meditation some 30 years ago, uh, when I sat my first retreats. Uh, there wasn't anybody could have challenging my behavior, I'll say or challenging my uh, morality, questioning that. And in some ways, I think that maybe there was the assumption that anybody who would come to a practice like this and who would you know, be sincere about it would obviously be following the precepts, which would include not using intoxicants. Now, that's the fifth precept out of five. So everybody doesn't get that's like, you know, you don't always get there. It's like, well, I read the other one. You know, I got the other ones. You know, what do you want from me? You know, four out of five, that's not bad. I'm not killing anybody, you know. Uh, and actually, I was breaking most of them. I wasn't killing human beings, but... Um. And so I, I think it's really helpful to, uh, to um, try to bring this into our Buddhist practice to bring the, the integrity implied in this, these steps into our Buddhist practice. And this is where uh, the word morality or moral is so important. Another word that becomes somewhat, uh, not exactly demonized, but kind of belittled, to, I, I think, in our culture. Certainly in the 60s we kind of scoffed at, at a lot of the traditional morality. Um, and it, uh, this sort of idea of, oh, that's for the uptight right-wing, uh, you know, Tea Party, evangelical, you know, red state. How many more <laughs> things can I add here? People, you know, and we're, you know, we're California, Bay Area people. Uh, we're... Uh, liberal and open-minded and uh, non-judgmental, which is, you know, all nice, positive qualities. Um, but uh, there's, um, you know, it's nice to be compassionate and forgiving, but it's also nice to have some sense of a container. So I think the you know the first the first uh, inventory that is worth taking from a Buddhist standpoint is this inventory of the precepts how we're, how we're living in relation to the precepts. Um, the first precept is about not killing, and so most of us are not killing other humans. The Buddha, of course, talked about not killing any beings. Um, that, of course, raises the raises the stakes quite a bit. Uh, 
the second precept is for, to not stealing, not taking that which is not given. Um, this can, uh, you know, when you talk to like engaged Buddhists, people like the uh, Buddhist Peace Fellowship, start to talk about this precept as a as applying to uh, to the environment or to how we use resources. Are we wasting uh, the natural resources? Are we taking more than we need? And of course, you know, from that standpoint, our whole our whole nation is uh, is um, guilty on that on that part. The whole Western world uh, takes more than it needs. One could say, uh, although it's very difficult once one's living a comfortable life to figure out what you'd be willing to give up so that the rest of the world didn't have to suffer as much. My second car, hmm, you know, uh, eating, you know, as much food as I want, hmm, uh, I really need this iPad. I mean, it's just, you know, it's important. I use it. And it's, no, we do. We use these things. They're not. They become integrated into our lives. I, and I'm, you know, I'm speaking really as a, you know, a two-car, uh, smartphone, uh, flat-screen, uh, three-computer family. You know, uh, uh, so it's it's not. Uh, I'm not here to judge anybody, but just to observe that at least. The, there's one of the key elements, I think, of inventory is to be able to in, take inventory without it becoming uh, judgmental. And morality without, without judgment, I'm not sure if that's even possible. Does that make any sense as a sentence? Probably not. Um, but more essentially, to take inventory without taking it personally. When we take it personally, it becomes a way of beating ourselves up. And when we can just see objectively how things are, how are we harming people, how are we harming beings, how are we harming ourselves, and then and then look at you know what's what's um, what are we willing to do? How are we willing to change? Of course, those are the that's really steps six and seven, I think, but. Uh, I know that when I was faced with taking my first uh, four-step inventory, I felt really intimidated by it. And I realized as I entered into the process that really for years I had been uh, setting up defenses about uh, who I was and, the, and, and, and unwilling to admit failing. Uh, that certainly the the relationship I was in when I got sober, that it, it was really poisoned by my inability to be honest about my own failings. Um, not to mention being poisoned by those failings themselves, but um, but my unwillingness to be honest about uh, that that there could be things that I was doing that um, reflected either uh, um, unkind, immoral, 
or simply uh, emotionally uh, unhealthy actions or attitudes. A lot of the surrender for me of the program was surrendering to my own imperfection and not being uh, ashamed of my own imperfection. That's so... Um, somehow typifies a lot of what I see as the shifts that need to happen in spiritual practice, just in the same way that when you're asking me about how was my meditation, this idea that um, the, the teacher is supposed to be such a good meditator and that, if, and that um, maybe I shouldn't reveal that I was obsessing about some resentment during the meditation. Uh, but the, that, in fact, I think it's, it's freeing to be able to admit things without shame. It's the shame and the guilt that is the problem. And I think we, you know, there's, I, I love the expression comparing your own insides with other people's outsides. Uh, I th- that sums up for me so much of our problems in uh, projection and in self-hatred uh, that we we and even it, we it might not even be other people's outsides. It's that we compare our ourselves to some ideal that we think is out there. It's one of the reasons that the whole like guru enlightenment thing becomes less and less interesting to me because it just seems to me like a a trap. It's a setup for us to feel less than. So the solution to meditation isn't to, you know, from my standpoint, isn't to become a good meditator. It's to stop trying to be a good meditator. That's the solution. It's to stop thinking that I'm that my meditation is supposed to be different from the way it is. And that, as I say this in my second book, it's called A Burning Desire. You may have seen it on Hay House. You can get it, order it off uh, Amazon. (laughs) It hasn't sold enough, so I'm trying to promote it. It has good blurbs, though. Excellent blurbs. They haven't helped. I say this, that probably the the main difference between the the person who's sitting out there looking at me as a teacher and me is that I don't care about the fact that my mind is wandering. And you do. (laughs) You're worried about it, you know. And you're struggling with it. And I'm just going, "Eh, there it goes again. Whatever. When shall I ring the bell? You know. I'm just going to sit here as long as I can. I mean, that's, that's my practice. Sit here as long as I can. Because, what did I tell you about concentration? The three factors. Stillness, silence, time. The longer I can sit here in silence, the deeper my concentration is going to be. And I don't know if there's anything more to meditation than that. There's all kinds of techniques. I think they're just time killers. I think they're just things to keep you busy, to make you think that you're doing something. 
Well, the factors of stillness, silence, and time do their work. That's my theory. Don't tell anybody. It's going to put a lot of meditation books out of business and teachers. So in the same way, the problem with our inventory isn't what we did. It's our relationship to what we did. It's the fact that we feel shame and guilt about what we did. And so as long as we're in that position where there's the bad stuff I did and then there's me, or I have to, you know, I have to get away from that. Then we're in this conflict, we're in self-hatred, and we don't have, we can't actually do anything about it because we are not looking at it. We're, We're shoving it aside. So when we bring it front and center, oh, there's my pile of crap. Okay, now I can begin to clean it up. Maybe. I can clean up what I can clean up, and some of it I'm just going to have to live with. Um, live with my own imperfection. And just the title of that book, The Spirituality of Imperfection. I love the t- title of that book. Starts out by talking about how baseball, this is re- another reason why I like this book, because it starts out by talking about baseball. How, you know, in baseball, if you can get a hit one-third of the time you will be a Hall of Fame level player. That means you'll be failing two-thirds of the time and you're one of the best. You know? And what does it take to fail two-thirds of the time and yet continue on? To not, to not just go, ah, I suck, I'm out of here. I certainly fail at least two-thirds of the time when I'm meditating and, and just generally in life. Don't we all fail most of the time? To be good, to be uh, you know, generous, to be kind, to be smart, wise, to meditate well. Uh, you know, life is, seems mostly about failure. I mean, if we you know, set it up that way, success and failure. I mean, right away, when we set it up that way, we're creating this uh, realm of suffering because we're viewing it that way. Ah, so you got me on a good night. That's all I can tell you. It's, it's, it's really. Uh, I showed up. You know, I'm here. Uh, One of the things that I think is really valuable and important is the positive inventory. Uh, One of the things, there's there's a reference to this in the 12-step literature about how if you're not careful, this can turn into morbid self-reflection. Ah, I love phrases like that. Morbid self-reflection, one of my favorite activities. I, I, I'm tempted to tell you about some of my morbid self-reflections. I just don't want to waste your time. I, I don't. Well, all right. <laughs> Here's a few of them. One of my morbid self-reflections is when I get divorced, then yeah, I'll be living in this 
studio apartment and I won't have any health insurance and my daughter will never come to see me and how am I getting, you know, okay, so that spins out from there. Um, when I kill myself, do you guys don't do this? <laughs> you guys aren't real alcoholics. <laughs> this is what they'll say about No, but it'll destroy my whole legacy. You know, my book, you know, nobody, you know, they'll th burn my books, you know. It'll ruin my daughter's life. She'll become an alcoholic, you know. See? Fun, fun, fun with fantasies. All right. So positive inventory. Let's get positive here. Olivia Newton-John just jumped to mind, so I'll, I'll let that pass. Well, what do you do with those morbid... Um, oh God. When I get to the point where I feel like I'm going to throw up, then I realize, what the hell am I doing? This is insane. I better do something right now. Yeah. I better do something positive right now. Something. And whether it's like take a walk, make a call. I come out here and I teach. You know? I keep showing up. Uh, um, showing up is, the, is so much a cure for so much. Because if you keep doing stuff, then stuff happens. And then when you, stuff happens, stuff changes. And if it's really bad, then the only place it has to go is better. And usually it is better because the morbid self-reflection is okay. Morbid activities are not, you know. <laughs> uh, and, you know, in terms of creating karma, there are three levels of karma. There's the level of thought, there's the level of word, and there's the level of deed. And it becomes more and more dense the further you take the karma, you know. When you take an action, you create more karma than when you have a thought. Now, thoughts tend to, word to lead to speech and deeds, but if you're mindful, you can catch them at least at the level of thought and not act on them. And this is a lot of what staying sober is about, right? That's why we go to meetings and talk about all the crap that's going on but we're still showing up, you know, we're not, we're not drinking and using, we're still showing up for our jobs and our relationships. That's, to me, the big difference between being sober and not being sober, and it's the same thing I'm talking about, uh, that uh, if I just keep showing up and doing the right thing, then the, you know, the, they say in the program, it's a, it's a program of action, not that, that, um, that um, wise actions lead to wise, wise thought. And that's actually a f the flip of what Buddhism tells you. Buddhism tells you everything starts with thought. The, the Buddha says in the Dhammapada, you know, the mind comes before all things. Well, that's true because, the, you know, this building was a was an idea in somebody's mind before it was built. It had to be thought of first. But for an addict, it starts to work backwards. The action, the repeated action, keeps feeding the thoughts. And the only way we can actually get back, because thoughts are much more subtle and they're harder to 
get grasp hold of and they're harder to let go of. So we work backwards from the actions. We start taking the skillful actions and that starts changing the way we think. But then we learn that we can intervene between the thoughts and the actions. And that's, you know, that's sobriety to me. Um, I had some other neat notes I found today. Let me just pull them out because I might have something otherwise to say. Where was that? Mm-hmm. Oh, this is it. So, um, let me talk a little bit about step five. Cause, uh, of, all, of all the steps, uh, step five is the one that we can say there's no, it's hard to find a direct corollary in the Buddhist tradition. Apparently, the, the monks tell me that they have this confession that they do at the end of each month, where it's, you know, they, have, they go by a lunar calendar, so there's, it fits in somewhere to their month, where they're supposed to, uh, they, they recite the precepts, which for the monks is 227 precepts. And then there's some, supposed to be some kind of, kind of statement of what precepts they broke, and, and I'm not sure if this is just done with one person or if it's in the community. But what I've heard, and I'm sure this isn't 100% true, but that to a great extent it's just become kind of ritualized. And it starts to sound like what confession was for me when I was a kid, when I would go in and I would just, I'd either make stuff up, which is really perverse, because you're supposedly confessing, but you're actually lying. So, but And then, you know, say these prayers, and then you're going to be absolved, and sort of, it never seemed to really get to the heart of the matter. Um, and we spend so much time in silence that the idea of uh, speaking your, your um, failings uh, doesn't fit in too much. But it's interesting that there is this statement the Buddha says at one point that noble friends and noble conversation are the whole of the holy life. That's kind of a big statement. It's often quoted. Now, uh, I don't think that the Buddha was a mathematician because there are other places where he seems to say that other things are you know, very important. Um, he's, but he's just tr- kind of trying to really get the attention. He's talking to Ananda, his attendant. Uh, you really get Ananda's attention because Ananda says, well, noble friends and noble conversation are surely half the, whole, the holy life. And the Buddha says, don't say that. They're the whole of the holy life. So this idea that relationship and communication is central doesn't sound like Buddhism to most people, but uh, there it is. Um, I think that one of the reasons that people... Excuse me, I just got a cough. So One of the reasons that people want to come to Buddhism to get sober, you know, because there is this, this, this happens, people and people will come to me, oh, there, is there a Buddhist recovery program? I think one of the reasons is just that they don't have to go to a meeting and share about it, that they want to just come into the meditation hall and meditate it all away, you know, meditate their addiction away. That didn't work for me. You know, um, I don't, I don't, 
it may work for some people, but I would say that the majority of people need need interaction. And even the uh, addiction researchers who um, are not supporters of the 12 steps say that the it's valuable to go <coughs> I'm sorry valuable to go to 12-step programs because of what they call social support that social support is vital to recovery that's why we're here together right that's why we're here meditating together that's why we're here talking together to support each other the Sangha in Buddhism is one of the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, the teachings, and the Sangha, the three jewels. Most of the time people just think it's the Buddha and the Dharma. But without the community, what, what do you have? You don't have very much. Well, there's a piece in the big book that I really love. Um, there's a lot of pieces I really love. But um, this, uh, this piece on... Uh, one more cough. This is, this is great. I was just reading this this afternoon. If you don't mind, I'll read you a little bit. This is about step five. This is perhaps difficult, doing step five, especially discussing our defects with another person. We think we have done well enough in admitting these things to ourselves. There is doubt about that. In actual practice, we usually find a solitary self-appraisal insufficient. Many of us thought it necessary to go much further. So I really think of meditation at times as a solitary, solitary self-appraisal. When you're watching the hindrances, you know, just that's kind of this kind of internal inventory. We will be more reconciled to discussing ourselves with another person when we see good reasons why we should do so. The best reason first. If we skip this vital step, we may not overcome drinking. Um, but here's where I think it gets interesting. It says, um, the, having persevered with the rest of the program, they wonder why they fell, people who slip even though they didn't, after they didn't do a fifth step. We think the reason is that they never completed their house cleaning. They took inventory all right, but hung on to some of the worst items in stock. Thanks, yeah. thanks Bill. They only thought they had lost their egoism and fear. They only thought they had humbled themselves. But they had not learned enough of humility, fearlessness, and honesty in the sense we find it necessary until they told someone else all their life story. More than most people, the alcoholic leads a double life. He is a very, very much the actor. To the other world, he presents his stage character. To the outer world, he presents his stage character. This is the one he likes his fellows to see. He wants to enjoy a certain reputation, but knows in his heart he doesn't deserve it. The inconsistency is made worse by the things he does on his sprees. Coming to his senses, he's revolted at certain episodes he vaguely remembers. These memories are a nightmare. He trembles to think of someone might think someone might have observed him. 
as fast as he can, he pushes these memories far inside himself. He hopes they will never see the light of day. He is under constant fear and tension. That makes for more drinking. Psychologists are inclined to agree with us. We have spent thousands of dollars for examinations. We know but few instances where we have given these doctors a fair break. We have seldom told them the whole truth, nor have we followed their advice. Unwilling to be honest with these sympathetic men, we were honest with no one else. Small wonder many in the medical profession have a low opinion of alcoholics and their chance for recovery. Now, this, uh, this, um, I just think this captures for many of us uh, that a double life. I know I had it. And I've, I've heard from a lot of people who like come to Spirit Rock or they were in uh, some spiritual scene and they were meanwhile still drinking and still using and sort of imagining that somehow that was okay or they were just in you know, denial. They were shoving that aside. Well, the part of the book that I love, though, that I was speaking about is this uh, after we do the fifth step. And this is um, really another set of promises that could kind of go with the, the promises after, in the ninth step. We pocket our pride and go to it, illuminating every twist of character, every dark cranny of the past. Once we have taken this step, withholding nothing, we are delighted. It's one promise. We can look the world in the eye. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. I think that's really interesting that they say that. That because we've opened up and allowed the light to shine on this stuff, that we can now be with ourselves more easily. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our Creator, whatever that is. <laughs> we may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. The feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. We feel we are on the broad highway, walking hand in hand with the Spirit of the Universe. Here is one of the definitions of God that is not spoken about a lot. But instead of saying God, they're saying the spirit of the universe. What's that? That's real different to me from the word God and what that implies. The spirit of the universe is much more open and kind of... Uh, um, I mean, the universe is in there, spirit is in there. It's like, it feels like everything, right? It feels like a connection. You could say it feels kind of Buddhist, or I guess to me it feels more mystical than religious, and even more mystical than just spiritual. It's mystical in the sense of this, we feel the nearness, uh, you know, that, that sense of, of just uh, fullness of the present moment, present moment, wonderful moment, the... You know, the sense of connection with all it is. We create separation when we hide parts of ourselves. We've, we've, we can't just you know, put something away and then be fully engaged with the world and connected with the world 
when we're hiding something. If we're going to be connected, uh, which means in love, in love, within love, then we have to bring all of ourselves to that and be willing. It doesn't mean we have to go and advertise all our failings, but it does mean that, that you know, in this idea of at least it needs to be shared with one person. It needs to, there needs to be some revealing going on. So powerful. It's such a beautiful piece from the book, I think, uh, in the much maligned uh, big book. So um, I want to apologize. I just want to tell you, I want to apologize. You know? <laughs> That's how I'm feeling tonight. Uh, I want to apologize. Um, and I'm not going to. As I know it's stupid. <clears throat> but just for being, just doing such a lousy job of teaching tonight. So, uh, I, I, I'm just. It's unfiltered. Yeah, it is definitely unfiltered. <laughs> No, it's, you know, I'm just letting you know, like, there's a lot, I've had a lot of feelings lately. They're really annoying, and I'm trying to get rid of them. There's, uh, apparently there's an operation. I'm, I can have to have them removed, so. Uh, but, um, no, good. I'm, I hope, I hope so. Um, But this, sometimes I feel um, that uh, I have some responsibility to, you know, be the one that reveals some stuff, you know, about Buddhism, the twelve steps. Well, well, we they they came to this class, and I was supposed to teach them. What I really want to do is I want you to engage in a process. I want you to engage in what, how can these things work for you, and you know, how can the meditation and the program and the Dharma teachings, how can it all blend together into something that works for you? I'm not, <coughs> this is one reason I'm a little hesitant to put out a book, a, you know, a workbook on Buddhism and the 12 steps, like this is how you're supposed to do it. I don't, wanted to find that. And I don't want to be responsible for that. And I think that's just another trap for people. Oh, Kevin told me how to do it. Yeah. No. You know, show up for yourself. You know, engage in this process. All I'm trying to do is kind of show you what my process is. Well, this is how I got it, what I thought about it. I look at, you know, what, did you, what, what do you see? You know, look for yourself. That's the process. And that's where, that's where the Buddha is saying, be an island to yourself. He's not saying separate yourself from the world and go off and you know, just do it alone. He's saying, engage in this process yourself. Don't expect me to hand you the truth or enlightenment or uh, uh, sobriety. You know, I can make some suggestions. I mean, he, to a great extent, he did talk about his process. Well, try this. Pay attention to your breath. Follow your sensations. You know, notice your thoughts. You know, let go of them. This is what I did. This is what worked for me. And he tells this story. That's all I can do. So uh, even though, according to this clock, we're two minutes late, let's take a moment to just close and 
connect with ourselves, the larger world again. So just coming into your body, into your heart, appreciating this moment, this moment of connection, of presence, of life. We live our lives and we're part of something. We're part of the movement of history, of human history. And the work that we do actually affects the course of human history. May our efforts be of benefit to those who come after us. May our love and our compassion reach out to those who suffer, reach out to those in Japan who suffer. And may we not forget ourselves when we are spreading compassion and see that we too suffer. Suffering knows no borders, either geographic or class or race. It is not confined to the poor or the sick. Suffering can arise for anyone in a moment of clinging. May we recognize those moments and let go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.